The Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Information is Power, Using Defensive Solutions in Cybersecurity, a professional development seminar. Featuring Technical Director for the National Security Agency, Aaron Ferguson. Director for Lockheed Martin Corporation, Carl Jackson. Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Linnea Jones. Senior Director, Deputy CISO for General Dynamics, Lalisha Hurt. And Executive Director for DTCC, Jason Harrell. Living and work environments have been revolutionized by technology, and it seems the possibilities are endless. From social networking to homeland security, impact of technological advancements is massive. However, as technology is used to capture every corner of our world, the terror of cyber threats and abuse remains an ongoing battle. Join us in this seminar where a panel of cybersecurity professionals discusses approaches to protect critical intelligence and design practical solutions for defending against and avoiding cybercrime and attacks before they happen. Without further ado, the Bay STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Information is Power, Using Defensive Solutions in Cybersecurity. Featuring Aaron Ferguson, Carl Jackson, Linnea Jones, Lalisha Hurt, and Jason Harrell. Okay, welcome. How many people have had a good time at the uh, conference so far? Yeah, I thought it was good. I think they're doing a really good job and appreciate that. So my name is Aaron Ferguson. I'm the moderator for this session. So this is a, how many people are old enough to remember the newlywed game from like way back? This is not that, okay? <laughs> this is not that. Let me just be clear about that. So just to describe what's gonna happen is I'm going to ask the panel a question. So first round, I'm gonna ask them a question and they're all going to take time and write down the answers and then it's gonna be a big reveal and they're gonna hold up their answers. Then I'm gonna ask you which one had an answer similar to Lalisa, had the same answer as Linnea or Jason or Carl and they will have some discussion about that. So it's very interactive. Okay, we're gonna kind of roll with that. I have enough questions to fill the entire time but it's an interactive discussion. Um, I will call on you. I have, I'll say, hey, Indiana University, what do you think about <laughs> X, Y, or Z? Okay, but it's not meant to put people on the spot, but it's meant to have fun. Um, a little bit about myself. I work for the National Security Agency. Um, anybody from Brooklyn, New York? Anybody from New York? Anybody from New York? New York City? No. <laughs> so close. All right. Um, went to Howard University. Anybody from Howard? I know you from there, right? Um, I went to school a lot. I'll just leave it at that. And um, been an agency at NSA 22 years, and I've had a lot of different jobs. But uh, I really, this is one of my favorite times of the year. But it's not about me. I'm just a moderator. I'm going to get into our, our very esteemed panel. We have Miss Lalisa Hurt. Raise your hand. Wait for people now. Lalisa is from Virginia, BS in System Engineering, MBA from University of Baltimore. 20 years experience in across the private and public sector, and you just turned 21, like yesterday. I did. Right, very good. So she's, happy birthday. <laughs> right, happy birthday to her. <laughs> so um, 
she's going to share some of her knowledge and expertise from the domain that she, she um, lives in. We have Carl Jackson. Carl Jackson, if his session, um, I didn't know engineers do that, is that going to yeah. be, was that recorded? I don't know. You need to check that out. That was absolutely incredible. If you have time, see, anyway, just talk to, to Carl after this, this session. He's a, by trade, a physicist from Morgan State. Anybody from Morgan State here? Okay, the mic from Morgan State. 39 years of industry experience. I think he started at Lockheed when he was 12. I think so you've been there 11. Okay, <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, we also have Linnea Jones, who's one of my favorite people. She is, um, wow, Deputy Chief Information Officer for the intelligence community and academic beast. I don't know if that's fair. <laughs> Right, um, BS in computer science and math, technology management, and I've known uh, Linnea for a long time, and she's always taken those those hard jobs, and so she has a lot of experience, and you'll see that in the as the panel session unfolds. And we have Mr. Jason Harrell, who is working for DTCC, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. I think he's an RPI. Yeah. Grad, I guess he didn't want people to know that because he didn't provide that school information oh, they, in the specific instructions that I gave the panelists, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, and he has 20 years of experience in information technology. So what you'll see as this panel goes on, we have a diverse set of, ex of experiences and it has to be interactive, okay? So this is how this is going to work. I explain how we're going to do the, the uh, questions. And in between each round, we're going to have like a lightning round. The lightning round is just where I ask them a question. What do you think about X? And they have to give me that answer, and we'll get interaction from the audience. I'm just a moderator. If, um, if you ask a question, please come up to the mic. If you try to sit in the back and raise your hand, and you insist on standing up in the back and not coming to the mic, you'll see what happens, OK? <laughs> right. So I just want to um, enforce, I mean, just want to be clear about how we're going to run this. We need order. Yes. Well, we have to do that to test all the test cases, right? <laughs> 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 okay, so I'm very excited about this panel, and this is only going to work if you participate. Okay? Only going to work if you participate. So we're going to get right into it. All right, so the panelists have their markers. This is the first question. I want the, the audience to be thinking about your answer as well. Who matters more to the internet's future, the states or individuals? Now, if somebody needs me to clarify that, raise your hand. You don't have to come to the mic, and I'll clarify what that means. All right. All right. Panelists, reveal your answers all at the same time, not one at a time. Okay, so we have individuals and states, states, both. It's a community effort. Okay, that's, I guess that was choice C. That's a push. <laughs> both. So how many people um, said states? States, okay. Who on the panel said states? Okay, Carl, you want to talk about why you said states? Please use the mic, please. Yeah, just primarily from a kind of a, a collective influence standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, as individuals, we have uh, individual choices, but uh, from a state standpoint, you, more, you have more of a collective influence, and that's why I selected states. Okay. Who else said states on the panel? You said both. Okay, who said, who said individuals in the audience? Okay, 
uh, we did Indiana. Gentlemen in the back. In the back. I said individuals because I felt that the internet is uh, international. It's bigger than the states. Um, they they can do some things, but people are going to make choices. Uh, they're going to choose what apps they want to use. They want to choose what services they like, and um, things trend or don't trend. And I believe that's what shapes the internet more than any governance. Okay, good. Jay, what's your opinion? So I said states. And I, take, I took that to mean nation states. Uh, okay. and so given uh, that we are seeing currently a backslide in democracy kind of around the world, um, those authoritarian types of regimes um, have all kinds of tools at their disposal to actually change how things are going to work from uh, the actual uh, technical means as far as controlling standards and things along those lines down to what they can physically do when you start talking about stupid human tricks with BGP, how they can actually stop traffic from coming into their countries, as well as uh, physical violence against people that are doing things that they don't want. So we're seeing the beginnings of them kind of cracking down with technological means, but that doesn't mean that it stops there. So I think mm. states in the larger Good sense. point. So you said both, Elise. Yeah, so I said both. So I said states for the exact same reason that Jay did. I also said um, individuals as well, because sometimes we are the biggest threat, right? It's people, right? We have choices, like like someone mentioned, and sometimes those choices have a huge impact. So for the same reasons that Jay said for state, absolutely support and agree with that. But I also think we as individuals have responsibilities as well, right? With social media, with blogging, the amount of information that we put out there, right, we have to take a role as well. And so I do think, as Linnea put, it's a community effort. So agree um, as well with the panel members as well as Jay regarding saying a nation state country perhaps doing a denial of service or blocking traffic or prevent, preventing data and information being seen by people in the country. But if you look at the impact of the people uh, just over the past eight to 10 years and the influence the internet has having from an individualistic basis, uh, from things going viral, from um, the, the impact that we have on government, government itself, as well as on the media, uh, social pooling and uh, social efforts, and even when you start getting into from the individual aspect, from the dark web, right? So if someone isn't uh, on the outward scene providing what they need, there's all of these back channels and doors, and I think that that allows for innovation, but that also creates great risks from an individuality perspective, because whereas before, nations states were our greatest threat. Now anyone with a computer and enough technical capabilities can be your greatest adversary. And so that's why I look at it as there's a balance of both sides, whether it be from a nation state, individual states, or individuals have the power in the internet to do good or bad. All right, Jason? So I said individuals, purely, I think, from a, a, a financial viability standpoint, uh, as long as there is the ability to drive revenue uh, through internet means, the internet is going to be largely controlled and, and dominated by the individual, I think more so than the state. Not not discounting any of the, the powers that the states have, but at the end, it, you know, the financial revenue is what's going to actually be the driver. Okay, very good. So let me take a, a poll. How many people say states? Raise your hand if you say states. Okay, how many people say individuals? And how many people say both? Okay, so it looks like individuals. Okay. All right, cool. Thank you for that. Next question. 
What group or organization do you think is the biggest cyber threat? Okay, what group or organization do you think is the biggest cyber threat? So be thinking about that, audience members. All right. I can take volunteers or I can pick somebody. Who wants to share their answer about who they think is the biggest cyber threat? Kevin. I'd say that uh, hacktivists will be our biggest cyber threats, kind of on the thread that which Lene uh, said. To me, the easy answer would have been nation state um, actors, but hacktivists, because it's the unknown. You don't know what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. Therefore, I think that is the bigger cyber threat, you know, whether it's for financial gain or just for just doing it just the sake of doing it. You don't know how they're going to attack, when they're going to attack. I mean, you have the same with that with nation state actors, but it's just the unknown of the unknown. Mm -hmm. So I'm so excited, Aaron, because good, good you would think that we coordinated this. I, I wanted to hold up. The unexpected hackers that we are accounting for. Okay. So, so Lene, why don't you start off why you picked that reason? Absolutely. So um, I know that we have, of course, the nation states, and those are the folks that we're keeping an eye on. Those are the folks that we're paying attention to. We're watching how much investments they're making. We're looking at how they're innovating, embracing technology, what they're moving towards, what they're stealing from us, what they're uh, developing and what's going on. I worry about the unexpected, the areas that we are not paying attention to, because we are very good at sometimes in the government, we call it the soccer ball effect, right, where we look at one area and we don't necessarily pay attention to what's going on other places. And these are asymmetric threats. There isn't just one country, there's multiple because whoever has the means and really uh, the, the resources in order to do damage. So I worry about us from a breadth perspective, uh, being able to keep up with the numerous amount of threats and the possibility because with the internet and with the means you can do you know, severe damage. Okay, why don't we start at this end with Lalisa, what did you say? I go back to the nation state um, adversaries that we've all been talking about. After hearing, um, you know, when they talk about the unexpected, absolutely agree. We don't know what we don't know, right? So how can we protect against what we don't know? Um, so I actually like that answer. I'll start using that. Carl? So I'll say China uh, specifically because the amount of technology and resources available to them. Although I am fearful of South Korea, I mean, excuse me, North Korea, just because. There's a big difference there, you got it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, North Korea, just because um, the lack of, I'll say, control mm -hmm. that, has, that they've shown, uh, the boldness that they've shown. When you look at the Ukraine, uh, when you look at Russia and other countries like that, uh, they're obviously attacking us. And as Naya mentioned, just the unknown, but from a sheer volume, from a sheer technology, from a sheer uh, number of resources available to them, the fact that they're using artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's an ever, you're always chasing that, that next hole in your, your defense, and it's, they have the resources to keep that going forever. Okay, Jason? So, you know, I said nation states mainly because, I mean, we do see from on the financial sector, you know, threats from numerous different groups and uh, whether it's hacktivist groups or nation state actors, but we feel that the nation state actors have, you know, the means and the capabilities to actually carry out 
very uh, advanced and persistent types of attacks against our networks. And so those are the ones that we need to pay more attention to because they change their capabilities and they have the ability to do that very quickly. And so, you know, when you're having, when you have to defend against something that's always changing in that manner, uh, it, it's, a, it's a huge problem. Okay, good. So now, who from the audience, like my friend from New York, um, do, you have an, do you have any thoughts on who the biggest threat is? Yes, sir. I had agreed with um, Mr. Jackson. Uh, I had written down China just from the sheer, um, you, their, their knowledge of technology and their motivations behind attacking us for our technology. That's what I had agreed with Mr. Jackson. Okay. Very cool. Thank you for that. Anybody else? Uh, so my thought was also nation states and governments, but I think all nation states and governments, not just our adversaries, I think including ourselves. Uh, because we know that governments are, you know, doing things that they shouldn't be, like hiding zero days so that they can use them as exploits in order to, you know, get what they want. But I think that the biggest threat behind that is that uh, there's a political component to that as well. And when you kind of factor that in, uh, a cyber attack can have a lot more of an impact uh, from a government standpoint than it can from say, an individual or a hacker or something like that, because it has other implications that could lead to farther reaching consequences. Wow, that's a good answer. Thank you for that. Sir? So I would say anything that's government funded, so government organizations such as, I don't know, the CIA, the NSA, for instance, you guys have Next like- Next person, please. <laughs> have, you guys have like an unlimited amount of resources. It's just like taxpayer funded, so it's like unlimited amount of money. So you guys have these unlimited resources that you guys can just keep on like in advancing and advancing and advancing without like losing funding because it's completely taxpayer based. So any like government that, this is me, I'm done. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, I came in late, so I don't know if you already talked about it or if you considered them a group, but I would probably say insider threat. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I was going to say the same thing. So insider, same thing? insider threat in terms of the um, couple of categories, whether that user is malicious or just misusing technology, or that user is just uneducated. I think that's the greatest threat that you have in any organization because the weakest link is the human. It doesn't matter what technology you put together, the greatest, you know, your, your employee, your users on the inside is the most critical. Uh, it's the reason why uh, uh, zero trust is still the biggest thing in security. Mm. So I'll figure that one out. Yeah. Good. I think that's, that's a good um, description. You went from nation states, insider threats, but also I think, you know, if I answer this question, I'd probably say users. You know, just general users are the biggest threat. You know, they tend to, you know, instant gratification. Someone sends you a link, your curiosity, bam, you click on it. And so that could be a, a huge link as well. All right. I think we have one more question in round three. All right. So. What service sector needs to increase their investment in cybersecurity, energy, in, in cybersecurity, energy, banking, small governments? And for Jason and Linnea, you know, there is a, a wild card choice D in case you wanted to do both or some combination for that. All right. All right. So we're going to start with the panel. Hold up your answer. So, Lisa, all on healthcare, 
energy. Laneka, you read yours. All energy. All energy, oh, all, and then oh, and Jason has some uncertainty. Oh, no, he just, <laughs> so he said energy. Okay, all right, so let's start with the, the audience. This is the participation part of this. Who do you, what service sector needs to increase their investment in cybersecurity? Okay, who wants to come onto the mic and talk about why they pick energy? Oh, at man up to my heart, absolutely. Uh, the bow the tie. Bow tie. Oh. Come, come right up. Come right up. Take your time. Um, so, in, I'm viewing this from a perspective. From a human element perspective, the one that would cause the greatest impact to me would be energy because energy, most of those systems are ran by SCADA system. Um, and energy itself has a direct impact to cause physical harm to an individual if those if those data systems are attacked in any way. Banking, more by financial, um, there would not be a direct human element injury in, in, in that is more fi financial record. Same thing for small government, more political empowering and just changing the, the way that a country operates. So because of the human element factor in that, that's why I say energy. Okay. So before the panel, I get to you about why you answered your the question the way you did. This, this panel discussion is focused on defensive solutions. So within the context of your answer, what kind of solutions do you think that these entities need to employ to better defend their information in the network? Lisa, you want to start? You look like you. So, Go ahead. No, so I'll start with my answer. Let me make sure I'm close to the microphone here. Um, my answer was all. So I think there's just a general opportunity for everyone to increase investments in cybersecurity, right? The landscape is changing. Technology is changing. We all should be investing in cybersecurity. But I will also add in there healthcare as well. Right, that is an area where we've seen this, right? Ransomware, PII, think about it. That is an area I think that we don't spend a lot of time talking about when we talk about investments, right, in cybersecurity. So I would add that to the list. Um, but generally speaking, it's general hygiene, right, of cyber, the basics, right? Patching your systems, right? Having a good vulnerability management system in place. Um, a lot of things, something we don't talk about, we talk a lot about technology, we don't talk about basic risk management, right? Just the very basic understanding of you cannot protect against everything. So what are the top priorities or the top risks for your industry, right? Because all of these industries have different regulations. They have different types of data. So I really think we spend a lot of time talking about defense and technology, but sometimes I think we need to think about the basics of risk management, right? And really focus in that investment on those high priority items where we're most exposed and most vulnerable um, because we will not be able to protect against everything. And I think if we focus our efforts and our investments, right? Because as we notice, small businesses, they don't have a lot of resources, a lot of funding, right? But the funding that they do have, they need to invest that in their top number one risk um, for their organization. So I would I would say in addition to the technology and defense, right? Take a take a inventory of where your risks are and more importantly where you need to put those resources. Carl, you wanna chime in? So um, I said energy, but I'll address your, your question first. And I think the change that is necessary is that we become offensively defensive. 
what I mean by that is we need to start thinking from an offensive perspective, as you st stated, thinking about risk management. What pieces of my business, what pieces of my corporation, what information is the most critical to me? If I lost control of that information, what would be the most damaging to me in my organization? Start there, secure that, and then move to the next priority. But the only way you can do that is think from a, an offensive standpoint, because if you think from a defensive standpoint, they've already solved that problem. They've already figured out a way how to, to, to get to you that way. So you need to think from an offensive perspective. Okay. Linnea? Sure, so agreeing with my panel members, Lalisha and Carl, uh, you can't boil the ocean, right? And so my answer was all, uh, because everything is now susceptible to cyber risks and cybersecurity. Our data is being mined for everything that we do, everywhere we go, everywhere we are, when we sleep, when we eat, and that's valuable. It's valuable to companies, it's valuable to individuals, it's valuable to government, and so we need to look at the problem from, this is not something that, uh, it's a freight train, it can't be stopped, right? So how can we agree, prioritize what we're working on in order to make better decisions? Uh, when we were talking about that, the first instance that came to my mind is right here in Baltimore, uh, they actually were held hostage because of hackers. And so just about every month, there is some city, some town, some state across the United States and really around the world that is being uh, hacked or being taken advantage of by hacktivists or by ransomware or by some cyber attacks. And that won't stop. It will continue on. So unless we realize that this cyber problem is not someone else's problem but everyone's problem, then we're going to continue to have it. Well said. Yeah, very good. Yeah, Jason? So I, I guess I'll just start by saying, you know, we, we talk about the threats of nation states and, and well-funded groups. So I think, you know, at least from the financial services sector, we've, we've, we understand that we're not going to outspend the, the threat. I mean, we just don't have the resourcing to do that. Um, so, you know, I think we need to do three things. Uh, one is, do we have the right people and personnel to help us defend against that type, the, the attacks? Uh, number two, uh, do we have the um, the uh, preparation? So, are we going through exercises of loss? Um, how do we prepare? Do we do tabletop exercises? How do we, uh, you know, uh, try to mimic the types of attacks that we uh, could have, and then how would we actually respond to those attacks? Um, and then, yeah, I just forgot my third P. Okay. People preparation, and is another P. Yeah, there's one more P. Process. Process. Yeah. Well, we can do that too. Process. <laughs> it wasn't the one I was looking for. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, no, the other one was uh, public. Uh, public and private partnerships. Oh. So that's actually how do you actually? So from a partnership aspect, sharing information with our government partners, helping mm -hmm. them understand, um, you know, right. from a private sector, you know, what technologies that we're using, and then having the government be able to share information back on the threats that they uh, know are existing or being. Uh, uh, used against the financial services sector so that we can better prepare ourselves. Uh, and without that, uh, I think, you know, what they say, either you hang together or you hang apart. 
Mm. Uh, so I think that we need we need that type of um, cooperation in order to be able to be successful. Excellent, sir. Yeah, I I, I wanted to raise the issue as uh, as it pertains to energy. When I look at energy, it's it's really those uh, critical infrastructures. So I throw not only the power companies but the nuclear to include water because that's powering as well. Right. And I think we've seen an example if someone can come in and shut down our power grid. It gives uh, the enemy, it may be Chinese or Russians, uh, the, the ability to kind of, you, it's far-fetched, but they can attack us. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you can shut down New York City, in which that happened not too, too long ago, uh, that's a huge impact on, an, on uh, the grid, and uh, it, it makes us vulnerable. So I, I, was, I was looking at it not just when I talk energy, I'm looking at uh, the critical infrastructure so if someone attacks it and hacks it, it get, hacks us, it gives them the ability to, to do a lot of uh, nasty stuff to us as a, as, a, as a nation. Good point. That's a very good point. So now we're going to move into the lightning round. Lightning round is where I'm going to ask each panelist a question, which you'll see, and they're just going to, they don't have to write anything down. They just have to say their answer and, and try to resist the urge to elaborate. Um, just give your answer. We're going to just kind of run through the uh, problems, and then we'll poll the audience to kind of see what your thoughts are as well. We can get into more dialogue then. All right. So, Lalish, in your opinion, what is the number one security myth? <laughs> that if you have good security controls in place, you'll never get hacked. Okay. Carl. You can patch your way through security, cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Linnea. That's not my problem. Mm. Oh, you're answering the question. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Jason. Uh, That Snapchat actually deletes all your photos and everything. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Very good. All right. So let's start with Jason. How early should cybersecurity education start? As soon as somebody can use an internet-enabled device. Okay. Linnea? As early as possible. Carl? I agree with Jason. As soon as they can pick up an iPad or a cell phone, that's when they should be taught about cybersecurity and how to secure it. Okay. Go ahead, Lisa. As soon as possible, preferably when they come out the womb. (laughs) When they come out the womb. (laughs) Talk to them while they're (laughs) All right. Last question. So we'll start with Alicia. What sparked your interest in cybersecurity? Is this one word? I'll give you you 140 characters. A tweet. Um, (laughs) Interesting. So I always was... I always excelled in math and science, so I ended up obviously in an engineering degree. I realized I was not great at um, the programming classes and all that stuff, but I realized that I was good at problem solving, risk management, um, analytical stuff, protecting and defending the base, and I kind of stumbled upon cyber, if that makes sense, right? I didn't grow up and say I wanted to be in cyber, but I think just the opportunities and exposures that I've had thus far um, over the many years kind of drawed me in and to where I am now in cyber. So So my first uh, job out of college was actually developing communication systems on nuclear submarines. So that actually got me to thinking, suppose someone were able to take control of a nuclear submarine, the damage that they could do. So that started thinking me about, um, started me thinking about 
cybersecurity. But the most recent thing that really has spawned my interest is the Internet of Things and the expansion of the Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. Because there's just so many vulnerabilities. You can secure your device, but all the devices you're connected to may be vulnerable. So I said that in itself has to be addressed, and that's what's uh, really strengthened my interest in cybersecurity. You're listening to Information is Power, using defensive solutions in cybersecurity, a professional development seminar featuring Aaron Ferguson, Carl Jackson, Linnea Jones, Lalisha Hurt, and Jason Harrell. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Sure, so I'm a STEM person at heart. I love solving problems and uh, I'm a researcher. And so I'm intrigued by the risks. I'm also intrigued by the innovative nature uh, that cyber presents and the ability to uh, be who you want to be. And so uh, I started, uh, I would say, grade school. I used to take everything apart and drive people crazy. And uh, I was intrigued by how things work and how they fit together. And so that's really where my interest came into STEM engineering math and and that side of it. And the cyber aspect, I was uh, during the dot-com era, so I was an AOL kid, if you remember AOL. (laughs) We have the modems for the dialing. You know, get online. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, but that the connectedness of it, the digital connectedness of it, was amazing to me. That you're chatting and it never closes; it's always open. And so, I, I loved it. I, I loved being online and researching. And before Googling it was a thing, you know, um, you know, it shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? If you would have thought back then <laughs> to invest in Apple and Google, but look at them now. But that's where I really started getting into cyber and, and security stuff. Okay, Jason. So I started my career as a as a network engineer and information systems engineer, and so I became interested in cyber uh, once I had to deal with the "I love you" virus in the the early the, the 90, late nineties and early aughts, um, and trying to figure out how do we keep this from happening again. <laughs> All right, we're gonna get into round two with the panel. So is cyberspace at risk of being militarized or weaponized by the military? Okay, hold up your signs, panel. So we have yes, yes, it already is, and yes. Okay, let's start with uh, Jason. Why do you say yes? Well, it it already is. I mean, you look at... Uh, Stuxnet, you look at Saudi Aramco, you look at the Estonia hack, you look at the Ukrainian power grid hack, uh, you look at the South China Sea hack, uh, it's already been militarized, this is just playing out. Okay, Linnea, did anybody disagree? I guess everybody said yeah. Anybody in the audience say no? I have a different um, opinion of it being weaponized? No, okay. I think you were shaking your head that yes. Do you want to share your opinion why you think it has? Or are you good? Yeah, why do you think, why do you say it has been militarized? I mean, uh, 
the 21st century and the era that we are in now is the information era. That's really what matters now, having the ability to control and uh, use information to get what you want. And when that information comes in tandem with things like nuclear warheads, power grids, governments, and the safety of people, it's not really a question of whether or not it will be militarized, it's when and how. So being able to prepare for that, you know, we should have seen that coming since the very beginning, and I think a lot of people have. And uh, yeah, really thinking that it isn't militarized, I think is kind of naive. Wow, very cool. All right. What are the emerging and future technologies that we will have to worry the most about from a security perspective? Let's start panel, hold up your answers. So like Jason still had some uncertainty there. Um, I just wrote mine out. <laughs> so Internet of Things, AI and ML, AI and ML, AI and ML. All right. Anybody from the audience have something different? Yes, my bow tie brother. <laughs> from the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. All right. All right. All right. Um, so we're using it now. I know that it's not going to change. It is the future. But I'm going to say the perspective of cloud computing. And the reason why I say cloud computing specifically at the end of the day, your data is just taking your data and sending it on someone else's system. That's all that it is. I'm a software developer. Developing an application securely on a, from on on-prem device or on-prem web server is different from the way that you develop securely from an application that's being deployed to a cloud server. You have to code for two different aspects and based on the uh, um, the environment that you're coding in for. Because of the fact that now we're taking that data and moving it off to someone else's system, that causes that opens up the gap for more. Uh, more of an attack surface level as opposed to something being on-prem behind your physical infrastructure. So, like I say, it's here, we have we, we have to use it, but I would say cloud. Okay. Good, Jay. So I would probably say uh, health devices and nanotechnology. So as medicine and technology continue to uh, converge, uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for physical consequences for uh, actual uh, technology. So uh, it's all fun and games, so you got to patch your pacemaker so somebody does not hold your heart at ransom, right? right. So, wow, that's good. Anybody else? Yep, sir. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the uh, uh, AI and machine learning, but I will also say, uh, since China is way ahead of us, is quantum computing. I think that's going to be an issue that we're going to have to address, and all indications are they're way ahead of us on that. So, so let me, this is something I know a little bit about. Um, okay, my perspective, I think a quantum computer is probably 20 years away before we have a quantum computer that can actually break the crypto that we have now. I think there are some quantum capabilities, but the range of them is limited where it would take a huge investment to do that at scale. So if you're just doing something locally, probably, but at scale, we're not there yet. But it's coming fast, to your point. It's definitely coming fast. Sir, come on up. 
try to help you out, Miak. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm concerned about this, the technologies going into these self-driving devices. You don't just have to have the money to buy an expensive car now. You can buy portable devices that will enable you to um, self-drive your car. Mm. Can I bring up an oh, area? Absolutely, absolutely can. So uh, looking at from another angle of area that we're also concerned with is privacy yeah. uh, and the morality Ooh. and ethical aspect of these technologies. What's that line? Um, we're now seeing that it's becoming more gray as to what's personal as opposed to what's private. So that's that's one area I worry about. Anybody else on the panel want to add to that? Yeah, yeah, a friend of mine just mentioned that he, he saw an article where uh, the FBI was trying to get access to Ancestry.com information yeah, for, for DNA. Yeah. And, you know, imagine the, the implications of that, right? Yeah, I think it's already happening. Yeah. 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 That's a good, does anyone not know what we're talking about? We're talking about the FBI. So the FBI had... I don't know if they got a warrant. I'm assuming they had some type of warrant on Ancestry.com, and they um, ran, gave Ancestry.com the DNA sample they had, and they ran it against Ancestry.com's database. And I think, if I remember the article, they found the match, but it wasn't that person. It was like their cousin that they were able to round up. And the implications of security and privacy and your Fourth Amendment, come, it, it makes it a big point of discussion. Um, that, that makes it uh, where technology and security and privacy kind of intersect. And that, that, that's a good, that's a very good point. A very good point. All right. I know this is going to be Jay's favorite question. But um, is it okay for a victimized organization to hack back? Okay, in the audience, who says yes in the audience? <laughs> You say yes. Okay. Why do you say yes? You gotta come to the mic. You gotta come to the mic. Come to the mic. Hello. Hi, hi panel. Is it um, is it okay? I would say yes. Is it legal? I would say no. Are we governed by laws that prevent us from doing it now? USA, yes. Are other countries no? So I say <laughs> we get on the same even ground with them and just hack back. So your answer is yes. Your answer is yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, who else says yes? Come on, be scared. Who says yes? You say yes. Why do you say yes? Panel, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, Brian Oz with Black Speakers Network. I, we were just discussing it. I think that to the moral and ethical, legal ramifications that she mentioned, all of that is justified. But when we look at the, that word, okay. To me, it just it brings up the question, is it possible and what's at stake? There are a lot of small business owners that don't have the resources of major organizations where a hack could be devastating. And so to the extent that you have the ability to maybe recruit some of your lost information or data or to try to secure what's already happened, I think yes. But to go vigilante style and just do what they did back to you, I would say no. So that's my answer. Okay, Jason, why don't you start? What did you say? <laughs> oh. Okay, why did you say no? I just said an emphatic no. Uh, because I, I start to look at the implications of that. So if everybody just starts attacking everybody else because they think that they've been attacked, and then the secondly is what happens if you try to attack back and you take you know, some power offline and then people actually die because of that? 
what you could end up having is an international incident where you, it could be considered by some countries as an act of war. So if you want that to be in the hand of corporations, okay, but I don't think that that's the, the regime that you want. Okay, Linnea? Sure, so my answer was, it depends. Um, and so <laughs> I'm being very careful with my answer because this is not condoning any sort of hacking, <laughs> activism, hacktivism, or ransomware. But uh, the reason why I look at it that way is because for every action, there's an equal reaction. And so uh, that's something that a risk that you're taking in mind. So um, when we look at the damage done, by cyber and by nation state actors, there has to be some balance in that uh, from a, even just protection standpoint of we need to protect what's at stake and not become vulnerable and susceptible to those items. So in some cases, depending on what's at stake, uh, I think it's a, a, not just a strong possibility, but I think that it's something that we should absolutely consider if that's what's best for the greater good. Carl? Only if they can sustain the fight. <laughs> <laughs> now, why do I say that? I say that because uh, for those instances where uh, you may have been victimized and you have the resources to attack and continue to uh, respond to retaliation as a result of that attack, then maybe, but most, most organizations don't. So I would recommend they spend their resources being offensively defensive and protect themselves from additional attacks rather than continue to attack and, and know that they can't sustain that. Okay, Lelisa? So I said no, but maybe. Um, and I said no for the reasons that we've talked about, right, from legal perspective, moral perspective. But then I think it's also important to understand that if you've been hacked, right, sometimes you may need to understand the damage. Sometimes you may need to understand where your information is. Sometimes you may need to understand the true damage. And so I would say the intentions has a lot to do with it, right? I would not hack back, right, with the same intent that what I was hacked. But I do think you need to understand, like, the breadth and depth of the situation. Sometimes that means going into someone else's systems. But I think it needs to be structured. It needs to be done by an independent party. It needs to be authorized, right? right. But I do know cases where, right, I do know cases where you had to go into their systems. I hate to use the word hack back because we needed to understand, right, what information they had, how did they get into our system, right? And that's where the forensics comes into play and in bringing in that professional to help you do mm -hmm. that. Another word may be respond. Right. Absolutely. Respond. Like how do you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Anybody from the audience want to chime in? I'm shocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you started this, you called me out. So, uh, so not only no, but hell no. Um, <laughs> And for the very reason that some of the panelists brought up, one, uh, attribution is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. So just because you've seen some indications of how you were attacked, it does not mean that you understand the extent of which and how those mm -hmm. things happened. Uh, and intent is incredibly difficult to ascertain, especially in the moment. Yeah. And so uh, as some of the other folks in here pointed out, uh, when you start talking about nation states and some of these other things uh, Jason mentioned, uh, that can escalate very quickly. And to Carl's point about being able to sustain the fight, everyone's thinking, okay, we're just going back and forth on computer systems, it's all fun and games. You can see with things like Sony and others where North Korea was not joking, they were not playing. 
And had we really got into a situation where they were really upset, they may have taken it to the physical realm. In which case, now you're a company that is telling the government you are being physically attacked by a nation state. Right. And that mm -hmm. carries with it a weight that is much different than what is happening on uh, the internet. That's a good point. That's a very good point. And it's interesting how cybersecurity, in some cases, I would argue can be characterized or we treat it as a forensic activity in terms of something happened and now we have to figure out what happened and not enough investment is going into being pre, you know, preventative, if you will. So as we talk about the next couple of questions, you know, hacking back, how do you prevent yourself from being hacked back? I don't think the city of Baltimore had a backup system or if they did have a backup, they didn't test it. Um, some people, it's like driving around without car insurance. Well, you know, you, you just don't really need it until you have an accident. So they, they, the opportunity cost for them is kind of going in the wrong direction. I do want to kind of keep moving so we have time for more audience interaction. Um, this question here is, I, I get asked this question a lot because I hear people say, oh, I'm, I'm going to get my CISSP, then I'm going to get my Security Plus, I'm going to get my Network Plus, I'm going to get my CCNA, and on and on and on and on. And so for the panel, what is more important, experience or certification? So let me rephrase that because we're probably going to get like, well, it depends. Right. So the question is, here's where it's coming from. Would you hire someone who had all of those certifications and probably just a maybe an internship or two and had some experience or someone who had no certifications, but they had significant network engineering and intrusion response experience? Who would you hire? Okay, and we'll start with the least. How many years? The city had 10 years. So I'm definitely taking the person with experience. And the reason why is because we can train you, right? We can bring you in the door. We can send you to boot camp classes. We get investments, right, to get you certified. Those are things that I can train you on. But what we need is experience, people that can think differently, people that have experienced true, real world um, incidents and events, right? And so if you're not certified, you can definitely still join my team if you have the experience, and we'll get you certified. I said experience as well. It's not that I'm dismissing um, certifications, education in general, those kind of things, but I think that those certifications and educations prepare you on how to respond to what you've been trained in, not necessarily what you may confront all the time. So that experience gives you that depth and breadth of um, different things, different scenarios, different threat vectors that you know how to respond to, uh, whereas the education again, is just strictly what you've been told. Um, much like um, your college degree, right? Mm -hmm. Your college degree prepares you to think, right? It prepares you to compete. It's a differentiator, but it's, it's not the thing that's gonna make you the best candidate. It, it is a differentiator, though. Okay, Linnea? Sure, so um, I did just write at the bottom of the same card. I put it depends, which was the same, but I have experience over certs, but both are valuable. 
uh, the reason why I look at it that way, same echoing off of Carl, is because I look at the certificates as a foundation, a foundational capability of having that baseline. Uh, it's not that experience isn't as valuable, but I'm looking for a complement of both. I'm looking for practical, hands-on experience because the in the real world, um, nothing is built as a green field as it is when you're in training or when you learn or you're testing on it. So you may be given cases or examples and the reality is uh, infrastructures, networks are all munched together by various technologies, commercial, government, a little of this, legacy here, new stuff there. It's just all mixed together. So I want background and experience, but I also want it to be grounded in what's right, grounded in some sort of foundation similar to a degree or having a basics of understanding so you can hit the ground running. I don't want to go back and you know teach like what C++ is or what Security Plus is or Network Plus. I'm expecting you to know what a denial of service is. I'm expecting you to know what a network topology is. Okay. Carl? I'm sorry, Jason. So I actually said experience. And the reason I say it is that I look at certifications as the way to certify your experience, not the other way around. So but that said, I do encourage if you are doing something and there is a certification for it, that you should go in and do certification because it shows your dedication to your craft. So, you know, but if I have to choose between someone who has a bunch of certs but no experience and someone who has a lot of experience and no certs, I'm definitely taking the experience. Okay. Yeah, is there a question? If you can come. Hello, panel. Um, I just wanted to say that many of us are consultants and we actually support some of the contra uh, government contracts. And because of, many of those certifications are requirements for um, many of the positions. And so sometimes if you might have the experience, but you don't have the certification, so you don't have the opportunity. And so that's unfortunate because as I hear you talk about the experience, that's important. And we look at that as a stepping stone. But unfortunately, uh, as we come into those uh, requirements and they don't have that, you will not even get the opportunity to even prove that you can do the job. All right, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna um, call an audible um, right now. So the gentleman, what is your name? No, you, right from me? Yes, yeah. Would you wanna come and join us for the lightning round? Sure. Yep, let's give him a hand. So Jason, if you can kind of um, share your mic with me, just tell them, you know, what school you go to and what's your major and what year you're in. Um, hi, my name is uh, Alexander Kiefer. I go to Indiana University at Bloomington. I am majoring in computer science with a specialization in security. Uh, it's my first year at Bloomington, but as of now, I'm a junior and hoping to graduate in three years with a master's. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Okay. We'll start with you. <laughs> what keeps you up at night within the context of cybersecurity? Huh. Uh, funny you should ask. I was recently having a conversation uh, with one of my academic advisors who actually brought me to this conference here. Uh, and something that she was asking me about was artificial intelligence and the implications that it's going to have on our future. And uh, 
when you read in the news about uh, the types of things that AI is able to do, it's kind of mind-boggling that it's come to that point where AI is able to do some specific tasks at uh, superhuman levels that we will never be able to achieve. Now, the biggest problem with AI right now, in it being like what we imagine the science fiction type of AI as this general intelligence, is that it's not able to abstract the ideas and capabilities that it has over a large number of uh, tasks. It's really good at really specific things. So the thing that keeps me up at night is that day that finally comes when AI is able to develop that general intelligence and we just won't be able to stop it because it will be better than us in literally everything and there won't be a single thing that we can really do to stop that. Yeah. Jason? So I, I have uh, any type of uh, material systemic attack on a critical infrastructure operator. So whether that's in energy, whether that's in finance, whether that's in water, um, just because of the sheer panic that it's going, it, it will generate uh, within the with, within any nation will will be concerning. Sure. So um, there's a lot. There's a lot that keeps me up at night when it comes to tech. But uh, overall, I would say one of the areas just the pervasiveness of it, the fact that tech is becoming a part of everything that we're doing, uh, we're becoming attached to it, like physically, mentally, and emotionally. Um, the impact that it's having on the societies, uh, how we're living, working, how we're interacting with family and friends, everything is being impacted by it. And I also worry about it uh, disconnecting elements because if you don't have access to the internet or a computer or aren't some sort of technically savvy individual, uh, it could be a challenge to go to a grocery store. It could be a challenge to go to a checkout. Um, I worry about the impact that that has on our society writ large and are we looking at this from not of the lens of everyone that can do these things, but what about those who can't or who don't have the access or don't understand what's going on? Will we be limiting society or parts of our population because of the advancement of technology? Carl? Uh, Two-part answer. First is being a father, um, the future of my, my, my girls, my family. Obviously, that is something that keeps me up at night. But in that context, I think, I think you may have alluded to it, uh, and that is more the unknown. The, the non-traditional attack uh, vectors, the non-traditional uh, adversaries, those, you know, you think about the Chinas and the North Koreas and Russias, you kind of you think, you, you think about the infrastructure available to them and you kind of predict where they may attack you, but uh, those non-traditional, the hacker in the basement somewhere or someone who has an axe to grind or insider threat or someone like that, those are the things that keep me up at night. Okay. Alicia? Well, I actually feel bad because my panelists don't get a lot of sleep, but I actually sleep well at night. <laughs> Maybe I should be up at night. No, but if I, if I had to name something, it would be similar to what Jason said, so an attack on critical infrastructure um, where we're crippled from a financial perspective, power grids are out, um, and to Linnea's point, what impact would that have on us? Um, so if I, up, if I was up at night, um, that would probably be the, the first thing on my mind. Very cool. I'm going to skip to 
Okay, Lalisha, starting with you, it's the final question. What is your cyber prediction for 2020, for 2025, and for 2030? Wow, that's a good question. So this year, what is my predictions? It's gonna be even more difficult for us to um, protect against the things that are occurring. Um, and we are going to have to stay ahead of the curve somehow. And I know it's gonna be difficult for us to do from a technology perspective. I would say AI, machine learning, right, is all at the forefront as my panelists have mentioned, right? How do we get ahead of that? How do we leverage it and use it to our advantage such that that data um, becomes a part of our cybersecurity strategy, right? Those approaches. But more importantly, I think we're gonna see a more of a focus on privacy, right? All of this data is out there. What does that mean for individuals? Um, what does that mean for the attackers, right? I mean, they have a lot of the information today, but over time, I think we're going to see a more heavy reliance on um, in AI and machine learning as, as we progress. And it may not be 20 years, it's gonna be more mm -hmm. more like five years, right, and even this year, so. Okay, Carl, to this year, 2025 and 2030. Uh, this year, um, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think my pr prediction for this year is we're probably gonna see additional um, attacks of influence, I'll put it that way. Uh, especially with the political uh, climate the way it is, I, I do see that there may be additional um, attacks that way. Um, again, longer term, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and those kind of things, I think those are the things, that's the forefront, not just to influence, but actually to destroy and disable. So it takes it to a different level. Yeah. Sure, so agreeing with uh, my colleagues, I would say, uh, that we'll see the impact of um, IoT and social media and influence and crowdsourcing and just uh, the ability for those avenues as well as I look um, within, say, the financial sector and how it's affecting with, say, Bitcoin and, and those aspects of it. I think that we're seeing the shift now of, you know, say, Apple Pay and different means and all of those aspects that'll continue on. I think future on, you'll see governments, especially uh, the superpowers changing the way that they fight, right? We're, we're doing it now. Um, it's not just a tactical fight. It's how can we shift for a, a cyber threat and cyber posture. So I think now where you see more of, say, uh, soldiers on boots on the ground, it's going to be fingers on keyboards. Okay, Jason? So for 2020, I, I, I guess I look at it and I go, okay, you have a, a U.S. presidential election, you have Brexit, uh, you have all the trade negotiations that are going on. So I think from a nation state standpoint, you're going to see a lot of increased activity, uh, misinformation campaigns that mm -hmm. happen through the course of the year. Um, in five years, I think we're going to be talking about data ownership and how do people actually monetize their, their information, information about themselves, and who actually owns the right to that information. Uh, 10 years from now, um, I think that it's going to be the orange race for, for quantum computing, mm -hmm. who can actually harness and, and do that uh, in, an effective in an effective manner. I mean, I think whoever 
uh, whichever nation uh, masters that technology first is going to have a huge leg up on how they interact with the rest of the world. Excellent. And our VIP guest panelists? Um, in my personal opinion, I think that this year we're going to see uh, a lot more AI and its applications in industry as it's becoming more and more prevalent, not just in specific sectors, but in virtually all sectors as it's able to greatly improve uh, inf efficiency and uh, just reliability. Uh, in five years, uh, I predict that we're going to experience some kind of major cyber attack that will affect most people on the earth that are connected to devices because it's, I feel like it's just a matter of time that we've become so connected to the internet and to our technology that it's become almost like another sense for us that without it we kind of feel a little bit lost and to think that I, five years fairly you know, not too far off, that somebody is going to find a way to uh, exploit a major vulnerability in these systems that will have a very large impact on people and make us reevaluate our policies on security and how we go about using technology in our everyday lives. And in 2030, uh, I believe that with uh, the recent uh, developments in quantum computing with things like uh, quantum supremacy, or so they say, uh, that we're going to see the downfall of things like the advanced encryption standard and uh, RSA, and that we're going to have to completely revamp how we view security because of these uh, new and uh, really unheard of technologies that we never planned for. Wow. Outstanding. So this concludes the formal part of our panel discussion. Um, can we give our panel, leaving our guest panelists a hand? Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to Information is Power, using defensive solutions in cybersecurity, a professional development seminar featuring Technical Director for the National Security Agency, Aaron Ferguson. Director for Lockheed Martin Corporation, Carl Jackson. Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Linnea Jones. Senior Director, Deputy CISO for General Dynamics, Lalisha Hurt. And Executive Director for DTCC, Jason Harrell. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bayes STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.